We'll hear the word of the Lord. Let us hear in faith and joy. For God has spoken. Reading Isaiah 51, verses 1 to 8. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places, and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is uh, certainly a true statement that God's people on occasion uh, get uh, discouraged. And our text uh, this morning is an answer uh, to discouragement. It is here that the Lord will uh, renew his promise of restoration, something of a repetitive promise. He's reminding the children of Israel that they will be set free from Babylon. Uh, it's a greater reminder uh, to us of our own eternal restoration. But it is a promise of restoration, as this text will, uh, I think, make clear to a uh, faithful remnant. And to that remnant, he commands them to look to him, to hear him, and to fear him. Uh, we know from the prophecies of Isaiah that uh, all of these prophecies have a near fulfillment in the nation as they will be set free from Babylon, returned to the land. It's a greater fulfillment to the church. So there's a tool, dual role here in a near-far fulfillment. Uh, I trust I will give more attention to the far fulfillment as it breaks upon each of us and our own times of uh, discouragement. Uh, the text, interestingly enough, follows a, a very clear pattern. There's a number of commands, number of imperatives in this text, uh, followed by the reasons for the imperatives. And those reasons are simply uh, the promises of God uh, that accrue to his people in light of the fact that he will redeem them. And then beyond the promises of God, the permanence of those promises. 
Well, the first imperative, uh, the text again, first couple of words, listen to me. It's reminded to us that our faith is based upon the Word of God and everything else is sifting sand. All of the promises of men, as good as they are, all of the promises of government, as good as perhaps they are, are shifting sand. Only God can ultimately deliver. And so the Apostle Paul says to us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. So Isaiah begins with just such theology, listen uh, to the words of God. Uh, the audience in Isaiah chapter 51 is a believing remnant described as those pursuing righteousness and seeking God. Uh, it means that the captivity in Babylon has sifted the nation. Some have fallen away. Uh, many are finding their, com their comfort in Babylon. It's interesting to me that uh, the great section beginning in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, is comfort, ye comfort ye my people. They are going to find their comfort in Babylon when God offers true comfort and consolation. But that's the way of man. Uh, they've been taken away in captivity. Uh, they find their comfort in Babylon. They will remain there. And therefore, all of the promises of this text are not to them. They are to a righteous remnant that perseveres in faithfulness to God. It's the same in the church. Time and circumstances have a way of eroding the convictions of many who slowly retreat back to the world. And so there's something of a reminder to each of us of the importance of a persevering faith. We manifest true faith that God saves his people eternally and forever. They can never finally be lost. They have the assurance of an eternal salvation. But again, uh, that is marked by a persevering faith, and uh, such is the summons of the prophet Isaiah. Let's begin with the promises. It's an imperative to listen to the word of God. Now, following the imperative is a reason uh, and the first reason is uh, the promises of God in the past that become the future. The first answer to discouragement, verses 1 and 2, is historical, uh, marked by another imperative. Look to Abraham. Why Abraham? Because he's a great patriarch. Uh, the summons to look to Abraham is uh, defined further in a figure of speech, the rock and the quarry that Isaiah defines by Abraham and Sarah. It's a figure speaking to the historic reality of the patriarch and his bride. It is telling us that God was faithful to Abraham and the promise was realized. I remind you of perhaps a great illustration of the promise of God to Abraham because before he cements the covenant reality that he's going to make with Abraham, do you know what he does to Abraham? He puts him to sleep, meaning that the greatest of all of the promises of God to the great patriarch is put to sleep so that God alone consummates the promise, meaning that it will stand forever, meaning that it is sure and certain, and such are all of the promises of God to his people. We know the promise is realized because the Apostle Paul cements this for us, fourth chapter of the book of the Romans, Romans chapter 4 verses 20 to 21. 
And yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. God promised Abraham a son. He had sons, he had tribes, and the tribes became full of people. A reminder that God fulfills his promises. The historic reality of the Abrahamic covenant began with the one and became many. Notice that the, the final phrase of the second verse, then I blessed him and multiplied him. And the blessing of God was based upon the grace of God, and Abraham bore many, many sons and daughters. And we are, in the church, part of the many. It's not by chance, but the power and the promises of God. We know this is true because of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. A verse I won't turn to, but uh, the Apostle Paul reminds us uh, that Abraham bore many sons. He had, he had a great seed. But for us, the seed is Christ. And Christ has even more sons. Numbered as the stars of the sky. The sands on the seashore are the sons of the great Redeemer in Christ and the church. And so, like the children of Israel in captivity, perhaps on occasion you get discouraged. Think the promises of God that he's able to deliver. Think the promises of God to Abraham and to Christ and that deliverance in Christ will not fail, has a way of curing a disturbed mind with the great reality that God is our God. His promises are forever unfailing, unchanging. This imperative to, uh, to look to Abraham and Sarah, the one son that becomes many, is followed in verse 3 by a reason to remember the past and that the past shapes the future in Christ. Based on the covenant, God will comfort Zion. He will restore her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden. It's interesting, God recovers the great historical marker of Genesis chapter 1, that Adam was placed in a garden of Eden, the garden of God. Adam failed and was chased out of the garden, but God's going to restore his people to the great garden. In grace, he will reverse the curse, and the people of God will be received back into the pristine beauty of the garden and eternal fellowship with God. It's our destiny. It's the greatest of all promises. We are being restored and will ultimately enter into the greatest of all gardens even transcending the Garden of Eden of Genesis chapter 1. We know this, for example, is a great promise of God from Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 4. John the Apostle says, I saw a river, I saw a tree, the tree of life, bearing fruit, garden-type imagery. And he compounds the promise in that very text by saying, and the curse was no more. And we have fellowship with the eternal God. I'm reminded of uh, the great author, English literature, Milton, Paradise Lost. I'm reminded of the greater author, Christ. 
paradise refound in the work of the Son. Paradise recovered. That God has started the cure in Christ and will eventually in Him wring the entirety of the curse out of the physical creation. The world cannot do that. The world will not do that, but God will. A couple of years ago, my family and I took a vacation to Colorado Springs. It's an important geographic marker in Colorado Springs called the Garden of the Gods. I was always somewhat amused by the gods reference, but that's the way of man. Uh, the Christian church has one God, but the world has many gods. Uh, I walked around the Garden of the Gods. A measure of beauty, I guess, but... Uh, really unremarkable compared to the garden promised in the word of the Lord. But that's the way of the world. It promises very little and it delivers less. God promises greatly and will deliver everything and not fail. The garden of the gods, the greatest that the world has to offer. Colorado Springs and the Rocky Mountains are a beautiful place. They do not compare to the pristine majesty and beauty of the garden of the Lord and the certainty of his promise. In God's garden, there will be joy, gladness, thanksgiving, and praise. They will all resound in one long eternal celebration. Reminded in our country, and perhaps in families, perhaps in your family, anger, discouragement, backbiting, God will reverse all of that in eternal joy in the pristine majesty of the garden of the Lord. Great illustration, is there not, of this in the word of the psalmist. Psalm 23, verses 5 and 6. Perhaps it's good to remind ourselves in the word of the psalmist of what that promise means and the great promises of God. You will make me lie down in green pastures, the imagery of a garden. He restores my soul, as you recall. My cup runneth over. The great celebration in a garden yet to come, our cup will run over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell, David says, in the house of the Lord forever. The promises of God. What in this world is forever? Nothing. What in this world has a cup that runs over? No such thing. But there is in the promises of God for his eternal people. And Christ our shepherd will get us there. So in all of your discouragements, and certainly they come, even to Christians, because we live in a fallen world and we are a fallen people, even though redeemed by Christ. You discouraged, think heaven. And that the fix is in. an unchanging fix, and that God will deliver. Reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We get discouraged, but we're not there yet. And as God's people, we will be there in his own time. God promised Abraham land. It was a symbol of heaven, Hebrews chapter 11, but the promise is ours too. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, be absent the bodies, be present with the Lord. Again, the fix is in, and God will get us there. 
So that's the promise of history in Abraham and Sarah. Let's look at the promise of permanence, beginning verses 4 to 6. The second answer to discouragement. It too begins with an imperative. Pay attention, give, give ear to the Lord. And I cannot uh, overemphasize the fact, if you find yourself perpetually discouraged, it's probably because you're not giving attention to the Word of God. You cannot read the Scriptures and not stumble over His promises everywhere that feed your faith. Remind you, He's going to fix it all, and that the fix is already in. Read the Scriptures. Hear the Scriptures perpetually reminds us, again, of the permanence, the permanence of the promises of God. As in the first section, what follows the imperative are reasons. And the essence of the reasons are the permanence of our salvation set within the contrast of the impermanence of what the world has to offer. And so in verse 4, for a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice as a light to the peoples. Now the law is a reference to the perfections of God that will establish order. Well, what's the big deal with that? Well, you can't read the newspaper or watch the news on television very long before you figure out there's a great deal of disorder in the civilizations of the world. In many cases, chaos, anger. God's going to fix the chaos and the anger and bring righteous order. Justice speaks to the fact that things will be made right. He will make them right. I have a good friend of mine, uh, the daughter that uh, went to a very prominent university in New York City. And there, from the professors of uh, the university, her faith was overthrown. Simply the way that it is in many cases. We go to the academy, and the academy has a way of uh, attempting to turn God's people away from the great promises of God. It's the reality of the world in which we live. We are not only surrounded by causes of discouragement, but we are surrounded by people who want to snatch away uh, the faith of our families and the faith of our fathers. And so her faith was overcome, and she threw it away for the promises of big government. Wow. It's an incredible reminder. The promises of big government. I'm not unmindful, but Civil government has a role. We know that from Romans chapter 13. Uh, but I'm also not unmindful that uh, government makes lots of promises for which it cannot and does not deliver. And if you think about it, I think uh, in a very focused way, many of the promises are meant to deceive us to simply uh, increase the power of big government, and power in big government ultimately lead to tyranny. It's the history of civilization. That's the history, if you will, of much of the Western world. Tyranny that comes from government. 
I remember World War II, FDR promises a chicken in every pot. How's that working out? I'm reminded everywhere as I listen to the news that, you know, what is it, one-fifth or one-sixth of every child in Oklahoma goes to bed hungry? I don't know. Maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's less than that. I don't know. I don't have a way to figure it out. I wonder. But I'm constantly reminded that children go to bed hungry. Big government promises a chicken in every pot, but it ultimately cannot deliver. Its promises ultimately unravel. I remember president, not far removed from our own this very day, uh, engaged in a war on poverty. More poor people now than Lyndon Johnson ever had. How'd that war work out, by the way? I'm constantly reminded uh, in our news. Again, it's a serious issue. I don't mean to make light of it. Just simply pointing out the government promises. It delivers little. Promises long and comes up short every time. great promises of uh, a competing form of government is the worker's paradise. How's that working out, by the way, for the North Koreans, the Chinese, the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republic? It's no longer, of course, but they promise a paradise. What do they deliver? Gulags, imprisonment, the tyranny of government gone awry. somewhat troubled by this because I was reading the other day in a business rag that many of the American millennials have come to doubt democratic capitalism for socialism and communism. I read that with entire dismay. Uh, Communism promises a worker's paradise. How's that working out in Russia, China, North Korea, Venezuela? I can speak with some measure of certainty with respect to the latter because Venezuela is a land of incredible natural resources, but its people can't even buy toilet paper. Government promises long and comes up short every time. You want a paradise? Trust Christ. He'll get you to the garden of the Lord and the garden of Eden. With respect to food, he promises, you who eat my bread and drink my blood will live forever. That's a promise he delivers on. He promises long and he delivers long because he is Christ, the redeemer of the church. You want a worker's paradise? Come to the Savior. And your expectations will all be met as you walk by faith. And that God will right all wrongs. And so the prophet Isaiah reminds us that salvation is near and righteousness is going forth. The context of these promises, Isaiah chapter 51 of the great servant songs, Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah chapter 50, the great servant of the Lord that you and I know as the Lord Jesus Christ. He delivers on his promises. He keeps his promises. And the New Testament, of course, documents that to a T. 
Uh, the text here references uh, a universal remnant in the coastlands, meaning that the grace will transcend Israel to the nations. We know that even that's been fulfilled in the book of the Acts as the Gentiles come to the saving knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. Here again, there's the latter part of verse 5. There's, uh, there's an identification of a righteous remnant. The coastlands will wait for me, and for my arm they will wait expectantly. It's a people that have faith in God. They know in light of the past that God will deliver. Now, you and I know from the New Testament that the kingdom of God has started. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Mark says the promises have been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Fulfillment has begun in Christ. All of the promises of government to create a paradise will come short. Christ will deliver. Wait for him. Look to him. Hear him. Trust him. And you will never be disappointed. The kingdom of God is at hand. And it's running its course. Reminded of that the other day, I was reading Acts chapter 1. Uh, Jesus ascends to his eternal throne. Angel comes and says, as you saw him go, you will see him return. Something of a measure of empirical evidence. You saw him go into the heavens, raised up in glory, and so he will come in just like man. You can take it to the bank. Christ will come. We will not be left in perpetual discouragement. He will deliver paradise. He will recover us. And none of his sheep will be lost in light of who he is. We wait the final fulfillment by faith. Let's shift, if you will, from permanence delivered by Christ to the impermanence in the world today. Verse 6. Another imperative. Lift up your eyes to the sky. Look to the earth. It's a merism. Sky and earth, figure of speech. Look at everything in this world. Cast your gaze upon everything in this world. Let me tell you what's going to happen to everything in this world. Isaiah says, the sky will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants will die in like manner. It's the impermanence of everything in life save the promises of God. Everything will fail. Everything will come to an end. Mind of the words of uh, the Apostle Luke who writes in chapter 21, verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord is forever. It's a great summons to the church of Jesus Christ. We have a way, do we not? And I understand how deceptive it is of putting our hope in this world. I understand the proper role of civil government, but ultimately they will all fail. But there is one institution that will not fail, and that is the Word of God. The promises of God will stand forever. Unfailing, unflagging, impermanent is the word of God. 
I'm somewhat amused on occasion as the American church uh, retreats to the social gospel. It becomes like civil government. Oh, we, we can change the world if we can produce more food, and we can change the world if we can meet all of the needs of mankind. There's a place for that. We need to be kind and love one another. But ultimate kindness comes from the promises of God that will not fail. I love again and remind you of the word of the psalmist, my cup runneth over, that you and I will someday be shoved by the grace of God into the majesty of the garden of the Lord and our cup will never run out and the cup of the world will be forever in. Again, the great promise of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 6, he who eats my bread and drinks my blood will live forever. Live forever. Time with that end. Not just living forever. The souls of the unrighteous will live forever, but we will live in everlasting joy and eternal celebration that will never come to an end. The promises of God and that he will deliver and the impermanence of the world that's like smoke that eventually blows away. That God gives us permanence. Notice, notice what the text says. Latter part of verse 6, my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be ineffectual. That's really my struggles with civil government. I understand that because we are sinners, God appoints civil governors for protection, uh, for law, to protect against lawlessness. But I sometimes wonder as I read the paper and study uh, the newspaper, if Many governments don't promote lawlessness, that they've perverted their calling from God and they have turned away. But it's a good reminder to remember that we are the children of the faith. We'll be okay. God will protect us. And none of those who belong to him can ever be lost because Christ is the good shepherd and he loses none given to him by the Father. He'll secure them all and none shall perish, and he will raise them all up on the last day. Think of that as a promise. We go through life and we hear the promises of men, they all unravel. Christ says, I will raise up my sheep on the last day. Think of that day. I know on occasion I get discouraged. I suspect you on occasion get discouraged. Let the promises of God seal your heart. On the last day, he will raise up his people. Restore them to the garden of the Lord and to a cup that will never run out. Reminded of the great promise that I just recited in a moment, Revelation chapter 22. I saw a tree that will yield its fruit every month. A reminder to us that God will do away with our struggles with hunger and all of his people will be filled, and they will hunger no more in the eternal presence of our great God. We struggle, I understand, uh, with issues like that, but it's really the recovery of the gospel is the ultimate cure for all mankind and the promises of the gospel. The world will fail, but God will not. And my salvation shall be forever, 
and my righteousness will not be ineffectual. And so we have in this particular section a great reminder to us as Christians, the impermanence of the world, the impermanence of the promises of mankind set against the promises of God that are forever, that are permanent. Reminded of the, the words of a wise man that God has set eternity in our hearts, but only God can deliver it. The promises of the gospel. Uh, the last section of our text uh, this morning, uh, verses 7 and 8, uh, is a warning. Uh, many of the passages of Scripture, uh, particularly as they deal with the grace of God, uh, come to us in warning. It's a warning uh, in a near sense to the children of Israel who, who say, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's delivered a lot for us. I have good housing here and... Uh, Everything's going okay. Why move? I mean, I understand. Isaiah commands me to move and go back, and but I'm pretty comfortable here. Now, sometimes Christians fall prey to such nonsense. God promises uh, that he will deliver, and yet I have to continue to believe in him and hope in him and obey him, keep his word. Sometimes this world becomes altogether too comfortable. And so the prophet ends uh, this morning, verses 7 and 8, with a warning. It begins with an imperative, uh, just as the text started in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 1. Listen to me. I remind you again, hear the word of the Lord. Never stop hearing it. And give occasion in the hearing of the word of the Lord to be reminded that you are to obey the word of the Lord. God speaks to us in permanence and we're to obey him because of who he is. Hear him. Listen to him. Notice again, like the text began, there's another reference to a righteous remnant. That God is carving out a remnant. You who know righteousness and in whose heart is God's law. It's a definition of the true people of God. A reminder that God has a remnant. Even in the church today, there's a remnant that has internalized the law of God, that has heard it and internalizes it, meaning that they have obeyed it. Everybody hears the word of the Lord, do they not, in church? That's not the point. To hear it and to keep it is the point that the prophet brings to us. All over the world today, people are hearing the word of the Lord. But there's another step, is there not? It's keeping the word of the Lord, and that is what the prophet is reminding us of. That we are to internalize the word of God in our hearts to hear it, to read it, to obey it, sometimes to memorize it, and to ask God for his perpetual grace, which he freely gives to his people to internalize it. Reminder of the great promise of the gospel in the new covenant. I'll take away your heart of stone and give to you a heart of flesh, and I'll write my law upon your hearts, the grace of God. Here spelled out in a righteous remnant, Again, Israel and the church 
are being purged. The true people of God have internalized the demands of the prophet. We internalize the promises of God in Jesus Christ because he writes it on our hearts so that we would keep it in ethical conformity to God. Someday, he will change us totally so that we believe what God has for us. We continue to wait upon the Lord. We know that if he was true to Abraham and Abraham bore a son, that he's true and sure and that God is able to deliver. Uh, the reason that we believe that God is able to deliver because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham had long since passed the age that he could sire a son. And Sarah had long since passed the age in which she could give birth. But that's the point of the promise of God that he delivers in his own power. And so Abraham and Sarah, long since past childbearing age, had a son. Do not neglect the promises of God and his ability to deliver, to wait upon the Lord. It's another imperative in this text to remind us of what the righteous remnant people of God in the church looks like. Look, look at your text, latter part of verse 7. Do not fear the reproach of man, neither be dismayed by their revilings. Sometimes the righteous become an object of scorn and laughter from the unrighteous. Why wait for God? The promises are sure, sure old. He hasn't delivered yet, has he? Just give up. why my son's uh, daughter in New York City was overcome. The academy overthrew her faith. That's the way that it is. Continue to fear the Lord. Uh, do not fear the reproach of man. If you're a Christian, people are going to laugh at your faith. If you're a Christian high school student and you go to the academy pursue your studies, I promise you the professors, if they find out you're a Christian, will laugh at you and mock your faith. Pay them no mind. Fear the Lord. The academy ultimately will fail. It will not deliver. God delivers. Even with respect to the promise of universal education, when the promise of the gospel is, I will write my law in their hearts, it means all of the sons of God will know the law of God in one fell, majestic swoop of the greatest educator of all times. I've forgotten 95% of what my college professors taught me. Because of the grace of God, I still remember the promises of the Lord. And I fear the Lord, care less about the reproach of man, walk by faith. God keeps his own. He will keep his promises. But again, as in character with the text, there's a reason not to fear man. There's a reason to not to fear the reproach of man. Notice the reason in the text. Verse 8, the moth will eat them like a garment and the grub will eat them like wool. The minute someone begins to mock the children of the faith, they set in motion their own demise. 
I have uh, told you this story before, but on occasion I put away wool clothes in a closet uh, that have some of my lunch upon them. You get a moth in the house and that garment's going to be destroyed. You begin to attack the children of the faith and undermine the promises of God. A moth begins to eat your heart, begins immediately to affect ruin and destruction. The academy has no clue as to what they are doing when they attempt to seduce the faith of the righteous. But God knows what he is doing. The grub will eat them. And slowly their lives will wear away into perpetual nothingness and everlasting ruin. Reminded of this in the New Testament, Herod stands up to give a great sermon, if you will. And the people, as they do so many politicians, they begin to say, Herod speaks like a god. And God struck him down. He died in a moment. And the text reads, the worms begin to eat him. God has promises even to the lost. Mock the faith of the righteous and the grub will come to your heart. And slowly you will wear out into perpetual ruin. By attacking the righteous remnant in Babylon, the wicked set judgment in motion. A slow erosion engages their soul. This is very instructive, by the way, we oftentimes think of judgment as a future event, do we not? One cataclysmic event. There's a measure of truth to that. I believe in a future judgment. I believe it's cataclysmic. But judgment is every day for those who know not the Savior. The moth is already in their hearts. The grub worm is already feasting upon their souls. And when they mock the people of God, that judgment intensifies and their souls will wear out. I sometimes ask myself as I go to visit my godly mother in a nursing home, I come in here and am reminded every moment of the gospel, every moment of the promise of the resurrection. I remind my mother in singing to her Christian hymns of the hope of the gospel. Why doesn't everyone else get that? Because the moth is already at work. Thanks be to God, he saves his own, preserves his own. In the, in the end, everything is taken away from those who know not Christ. But the text concludes in the great promise of the gospel. God says, Isaiah chapter 51, verse 8, But my righteousness shall be forever, my salvation to all generations. It is the timeless, unending, uninterrupted, and perpetual promises of God to his righteous remnant. And his promises ultimately will be absent wrath, the greatest promise of all time, that God saves. And when he saves, he saves forever. And when he saves, he saves totally and when he saves, he saves absolutely. I love the words of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in the ninth verse. I have not seen nor ear heard what God has for those who believe in him. If you're not a Christian, I simply remind you of the promises of the gospel. Government 
will not deliver. The best of the promises of your beloved parents will ultimately come to an end. God's promises are forever. Christ saves by the shedding of his blood. He gives us his body to eat and his blood to, to drink that we will never die. The promise of the gospel. John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he die, he shall live forever. May God give you grace to pursue him, to follow him, to hear him, to listen to him, and to internalize in your heart the greatness of the promises that he writes there, namely that he will deliver and he keeps his own. Well, I know as Christians we get discouraged. And so God rehearses his faithfulness to his covenant, his promises in an escalated recovery in paradise, recovered, absent the possibility of another fall in permanence. And again, God gives us that which the heart longs for, eternal security. I simply remind you from the text, God will deliver it all and he will not fail you. And may God bless us in these promises. Amen.